Hi, this is Nick Dawson, the Editor-in-Chief of TalkHouse Film, and you're listening to the TalkHouse Film Podcast. If you haven't heard of Adam Kurtzis, well, that's probably because he wants it that way. As he says in this episode of the podcast, it's to his advantage to stay below the radar. When we recorded the conversation you're about to hear, he declined to have his photo taken in order to help protect his anonymity. That anonymity, though, is increasingly under threat due to the fact that, basically, Curtis is really good at what he does. A lifer at the BBC, Curtis has carved a niche for himself, making sprawling, massively interconnected documentaries about the world we live in, using music and the visual language of popular TV to create work that plays with the compelling immediacy of fiction. Sierra Pettengill, writing for TalkHouse Film in 2015, described his films as conspiracy movies for the arthouse crowd, documentaries known for their grand sweeping narratives in which a dizzying array of disparate characters, historical epochs and ideological threads are knitted into a complex and often overwhelming thesis. Because of those films, and particularly the most recent two, Bitter Lake and Hypernormalization, Curtis has gained a certain kind of cult status, a frenzy surrounding the release of each of his films, which technically are only supposed to be seen in the UK on the BBC's website, but inevitably end up on video and file sharing sites and are devoured by millions across the globe. Among his many fans are comedian Neil Brennan and Frontline's Michael Kirk, who raved about his 2004 film The Power of Nightmares on this very podcast just a month or so ago. This past weekend, Curtis was in LA for a three-day film series at CineFamily called Into the Zone, A Weekend with Adam Curtis. And while he was there, he took time out to chat with Tim Heidecker, the comedic genius who causes all kinds of trouble in Tim and Eric on cinema, Decker, and check it out with Steve Brule. Heidecker, who's a big fan of Curtis's work, chatted with Curtis on the CineFamily patio while hypernormalization played. And in fact, along with traffic noise, you can hear the sounds of the movie bleeding in from time to time. So the sound on this episode is pretty real, and so is the conversation, which starts out gently with Curtis talking about how, from making TV segments about funny pets, he evolved into the unique filmmaker he is, but then gets heavily into the nitty-gritty of the messiness of our world in 2017, including, inevitably, Donald Trump, how the financial world wrested control of Washington, D.C., liberals and progressives' role in their own downfall, the problem with the Occupy movement, how John Oliver and John Stewart contributed to Trump's success, the power of storytelling and politics, and much more. Curtis's clarity and insightfulness is remarkable, so if you want to finally feel like you understand what's going on right now, keep listening. Thank you for doing this. Pleasure. I've never met you before. I don't think so, no. And, but I'm a huge fan of your work. I'll admit that. Thank you. Um, I think I became aware of... My wife, first of all, talked to me for years about The Century of the Self. It's like a very important film for her. And any time a commercial would come on, she'd say, well, that's why. You know, she said, well, you have to watch The Century of the Self. And so that was in the back of my head. And then... A few years ago, I, some blog that I like, I don't remember what it was, but they posted something about Bitter Lake, and it, it was ra- it raved about it. It said, this is the most important film of the year. That catches your attention, you know. And, uh, and it's very hard to watch, by the way. You know that your movies are very hard to watch in the States. Yeah, they, they can't be released here. Right, and why is, it, why is that? The primary reason is music, interestingly enough. Right. Because it, 
in in the UK, I can use a lot of music, which I can't use internationally. Right. Film, it's okay. You can clear it much more easily. Um, music, that's really the problem. That, and so the BBC doesn't isn't interested in in clearing the music to be shown internationally. It would cost a lot. It would cost a lot. I mean, I use a lot of music. Yes? You do use a lot of music. Yeah. And also, I mean, I'm, to be honest, I, what I've noticed with my films is that when I make them, they when they go out, they pretty soon get onto the internet. Right. Now, the BBC doesn't like that, but there's nothing they can do to stop it. Uh, and they tend to get seen everywhere. And so my private view is that I work for a public broadcaster. The public should be allowed to see it. If it goes on the internet, so be it. This is no longer your private view, by the way, as of now. (laughs) No, well, I mean, I think it's fair to say it. I mean, we have a battle in the BBC about this sort of thing. Right, right. I mean, I think that everything we've ever made in the BBC should be put up online. Right. But But is the music that you're using, it's from all, it's it's, it's not library music necessarily. I hardly ever use library music. Right, it's, it's people that made music it's all you know, sorts it's artists, of things. Right. It's stuff that I've picked up from um, all over the place. Right. Uh, and I think, I mean, one of the things I find very dull in a lot of documentaries is the music is dull. Right. We've not noticed this. Well, God, the uh, Ken Burns uh, playing the Star Spangled Banner done through a fiddle and a flute and that kind of stuff. The, there is a certain, <laughs> how would I describe it, literalism in a yes. lot of factual filmmaking. Right. So if you have... Um, if you have a film about bankers and how bad they are, you play Money by... Of course, right. <laughs> yeah. Pink Floyd. Yeah. And it's this literal mindset, whereas I think, actually, I don't see why films, factual films, can't be as emotionally involving as uh, fictional films. Right. It's not bad. It's, right. It's best. It draws people in. So yeah. I tend to use all kinds of music like that, which, to come back to your original point, it's difficult to clear it for international use. Right. Let's talk since I don't know much about you beyond your films and as well as much as you want to can you talk to me just about your background and where you came from and what what got you to the place where you're making these kind of films I'm just a journalist who works at the BBC who got bored but that's interesting how do you get to become a journalist at the BBC you join you join the BBC and I joined it's compulsory every British every, person, every person has to person join, has join the BBC, the BBC. <laughs> and I joined as a I couldn't think of anything else to do right so I, I applied to the BBC, got in, and I was immediately put into trash television. Oh, right. They thought that suited me. So I spent my well, early days making films about talented animals. That was, that was what that <laughs> and, and actually, the first film I ever Talented animals. <laughs> the first film I ever made for the BBC was three and a half minutes long, and it was about a dog that talked. And it's actually very famous now in, in Britain. It's, it's still, it's got into the water somehow. Uh-huh. And it was a dog and it just said one word. It went, sausages. <laughs> right, I think I've seen that. I've seen that and on the internet. that got 22 million view- no, 20 million viewers. And that's the biggest audience I've ever, <laughs> ever had. <laughs> yeah, for, a for anything, yeah. Yeah, it's been. Sausages, of course. Sausage, it's called Sausages the Dog. And so you're going into the BBC every day and you're not happy with the kind of work you're making? or well, you're to, not. to be honest, what I simply did is I did trash television. I worked out. And if you go and do trash TV, right. you learn very quickly the rules of how you can entertain people. Right. Like the, the tricks, yeah. The tricks. Like the fact that if you film someone who think that, thinks they're funny, they're not funny. 
right. That's just a fact of yeah, life. Yeah. Whereas if you've got someone who is really serious yeah. and will talk for a long time yeah. about how you can drive around LA in a very complex way, right. the longer you run it, the funnier it gets. Right, right, yes? right, yeah. Or if you find a dog that won't sing, <laughs> right, but right. its owner says that it will sing. Yeah, the panic there. The... Instead of panicking, yeah. you just keep filming. Yeah, yeah. As the, as the owner tries to get the dog yeah, to sing. And that's very funny. Yeah. So you learn that actually the way reality pans out in real terms can be very funny. So right. I learned that. Right. Then I got bored. Yeah. And then since I'd been to university and studied politics, I decided to see whether you could put those trash techniques together with, how would one put it, high-end techniques right. <laughs> of serious political analysis. And I found you could. You could right. actually... You could actually make politics, the reporting of politics, entertaining. Right, but they did. You, you, did you know where the where the outlet for that would be? Uh, so obviously the BBC, but you, it would be presented on TV as yeah, just you started as a documentary. I mean, I mean, you know, it grew. Yeah. I started making documentaries. I mean, the one that it really, I got. I remember I was sent to make a really serious film about the Iranian Revolution and why it went wrong. Right. Yeah. I did, yes. I, and, I went and, and I went and interviewed lots of people in shadows who were exiles from Iran who talked about torture a lot. Right. And I'm going to be cynical here. As I filmed these people in silhouette, I kept on thinking to myself, I've seen this sort of kind of documentary a million times. Right, right. And although these people have obviously had a really bad time, right. and they really care for their loved ones who were killed and who were tortured, if I'm watching this, I'm not listening to them. Right. What I'm, I'm thinking, oh, I'm watching one of those documentaries with people in silhouette telling me about bad things that have happened to yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. And I just realized you couldn't do this. I, could, I just couldn't do it. Right. So I went and made a really weird film about the French Revolution and the Iranian Revolution and started intercutting all sorts of footage and silent right. movies made by D.W. Griffith about the French Revolution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just played. Yeah. Because I just couldn't bear the idea that it was this sort of realization that actually a lot of television just tells you what you already know. Right. And it, its job it's is really to actually, unsatisfying. It's, By the end of it, you're like, ah, I'm back where I started, right? Yeah. But but it's sort of like it's making you feel good about yourself because you're actually it's it's pretending to tell you new stuff when right. in fact actually this the underlying dialogue between you and the program maker is, no, we both know this, and that means we're both very clever people. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yes. Which means that what you actually tend to deal with in documentaries is accepted cliches that you already know. Right. So you can sit there and say, oh, these people have been tortured. That's really bad. Yeah. And then you just go, oh, dear, at the end. And yeah. that's it. Right, right, right. Whereas I just thought, I can't do that. So yeah. I started playing. Uh, and I was, you know, I was lucky enough that that was the point at which all sorts of technology was coming out where you could actually edit much more fluidly all kinds of footage. Now, are you technically, are you edit, Are you sitting there in the, in I, the, I do the, the booth and just, myself. Yeah. you I do very, the edits yourself? I very quickly worked out how to edit. It's, it's not like, that hard. It's like writing. Yeah. I it, never understand why producers don't edit their own right. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's time consuming. No, it's not. It's no different from if you're a journalist, you go out, you write lots of notes, you come back and you type it out. Right. It's sort of not that different. Right, you're right. You it's choose, like, you it's an evolved your... version of the, the letters that come yeah. up on the screen, yeah. right? You, you choose your quotes from the people. Right. You write the, the commentary. Right. You put some images in there, and you, then you slap some music in. I mean, it's a little more complicated, but it yeah. is a form of writing. Right. So I don't see, suddenly the technology in the 1990s was offered people like me. Right. Well, you can do it yourself and save a lot of money. 
which then, which I then worked out that I would have to ask the BBC for not very small, big budgets. At which point, you realise the radar of attention lessens. Uh, absolutely. I mean, personally, all the shit I make, the less money you're given, the more freedom you have, and the more exactly. you get to do what you want to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the more you easy. can cut your budget down, yeah. the less they worry about you. Right. If you, but then if you're given millions, oh, it's a nightmare. They're constantly yeah. worrying because <laughs> you're never going to make it back for them. No. And that freezes your imagination. Whereas if you're just going to go and shoot it yourself, use a bunch of old archive you found in the BBC archives, which right. is free, and then edit your, it yourself in a strange dark room. That's it. Right. Nothing. Was the was the century of the self the the, the first bigger uh, project that felt like it was really what you wanted to do then? It was the first one I'd worked out. It was the first one where I decided that I could make a film about politics and power, yeah. which didn't actually have any politicians in it. Right. Because I'd just worked out that what was really fascinating about our age and what had led up to it, yeah. where there are all these things that shaped the way we thought and felt, yeah. were as important in shaping our lives as what the lawmakers decided right. to do within and those Washington. people come and go. Yeah. And also, they are endlessly reported on in quite rigid ways. Right. I wanted to tell the story of all those, of how culture shapes our yeah. lives. Yeah. Because the other thing I grew up realizing, I think the previous generations used to talk to each other in terms of politics. Right. They would talk about what party they were, they were supporting. Right. So that's their identification. Yeah, my dad would do that. Right. And he would have arguments with his friends about politics. When I grew up, we talked about the music we liked. Right. And we talked about the films we liked. Right. And the bands we liked. And that, that, that synced with your politics, or yes. the kind you, of person you, you knew, were. You right. knew the person's politics right. from the kind of music they would okay, talk so about. Okay, so what it. was the music you, what was the band you liked that, that synced with your, with your politics? Yeah, well, I was a bit odd like that, because I really liked trashy uh -huh. glam rock. Oh, really? <laughs> and like disco. Disco. Yeah. Okay. And I just thought that was beautiful music. But that was um, that would because have been it was would that have lined with with conservative necessary like because of because of how vapid it was and how meaningless it was. No, I think disco is one of those. It's not vapid at all. It's incredibly beautiful. I take that back. Pop, I guess. Pop, like I uh, love pop music. Yeah. I just love it because it's sort of it doesn't feel it has to be anything other than what it is. Right. There's a thing in music now that I don't know if you've noticed. Pop music now. There's a kind of oh, 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 oh. There's this O. Oh. Yeah. Have you heard the O? Oh? Yeah. I have a three and a half year old daughter. All the kids' movies have a song that has, it sounds like it's brain, it's like some kind of, um, there's, you know, they're, they're warping or the kids' brains or something. Every movie has a song that goes oh, 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 oh. And I don't know what it is, but it's in all of pop music right now. Well, it's like about two years ago, the rise of what was called the drop. The drop, right. I've got exactly. so bored with the drop. Yes. <laughs> it was fine when Rihanna did yeah. it. And they also have a, a ukulele. There's a ukulele in every pop song now. It's crazy. I mean, maybe it's just because people are lazy and they put in what is what worked last time. Yeah. And then that eventually doesn't work and it gets, it gets flushed out. It is out. a bit stuck at the moment, pop. Absolutely. It's, a, it's stuck in this digital beats thing. And, and it doesn't quite know a way out of it. Right. And, and it's, it simply found the, fu the fusion of hip-hop and sort of, I don't know, electro, yes. electro-pop. They've just put the two together. Right. And they've got, they, it's almost like they're stuck together in this dance. They can't get out of it. Right. I, I, I don't know anything about hip-hop 
okay? <laughs> I don't want to sit here and talk about it because I'm not an expert on it. Um, let's talk about the world, that, that, like what's going on. Like you're in Los Angeles. Is this the first time you've been in America since the election of Donald Trump? No, it's the first time I've been on the West Coast. Okay. Um, what's going on in your in your? What do you think is happening? Is do you are, want my cynical view? Um, no, my harsh, of course. I just my want harsh, you want, yeah, whatever. My harsh, want. realistic view right. from outside. Yeah. Which is not. I'm not being unsympathetic, but given lo a lot of the other things that are happening in the world at the moment, right. above all in Turkey and Syria, which I right. think is really dangerous. Yeah. You've had a hard right-wing isolationist elected. Right. I think there are some clever new bells and whistles, which is that the man at the front, Donald Trump, yeah. is great at distracting the liberals and turning them into hissy fits, right. which, get, which means they're continually being played with by Preoccupied him. with yes. things that aren't as important. Yeah, he gets up in the morning and goes, well, what can I really poke them with today? Right. And he says something really bad. Right. And they go into a hissy fit right. and, and get on their social media and write, write everything in big capitals with exclamation marks. Right. Yeah. The social media barons who run those platforms love it because sure. angry people click more. Right. The people out in the Midwest who voted and in Ohio and places like that, Donald Trump looks at them and says, look, see these liberals? Mm -hmm. They don't want to keep you safe. Right. They're laughing at you. Right. So the people in Ohio get angry again. Right. And there's a continual machine of fury right. that's been invented. And what's actually really happening is behind the scenes, a quite hard right-wing government is moving into power. Well, do, get deal with it. You lost the election. If you don't like it, come up with something better. Right. But how do we keep it together? I mean, I, you know, the, the United States always feels like it's just going insane. I mean, it has felt that way for a while. But what is it that, what, in your opinion, what is it that keeps us from turning into you know, uh, just a, a, a where we're in the middle of the street, fucking throwing rocks in each other's windows, and or do you think it's going in that direction? No, I think there's a lot of um, narcissistic hysteria going on in America at the right. moment. Above, I mean, I think really what's happened in America is the liberals have given up. Yeah, and I think it's one of the great questions of our time: is why one of the most privileged groups in the in the history of the world? Yeah. Um, liberals and progressives who, as recently as the 1950s and 1960s, had an optimistic view that politics and their education could be used to transform the world and change it, right. have ended up as total dark pessimists who right. sit at home reading Cormac McCarthy's books about the road, <laughs> thinking the planet is going to die. Right. And when they see terrible things happening in uh, the Middle East or people dying in boats in the Mediterranean, they just literally go, oh dear, and do nothing about right. it. Yeah, and it's I, overwhelming. I, it overwhelms Some of it's them. overwhelming. And then it's begun to over, and, and it, because they retreat into that pessimism, they detach from the very people they 30 or 40 years ago wanted to help. Right. Which were the dispossessed, the underprivileged, who actually, need their help. Right. That was the idea. Right. But they've retreated. And that's one of the, the themes of uh, hypernormalization is this, uh, and, I th and I think your other films as well, is this lack of vision for the future that, that, used, to, that used to exist. Yes. We have no, there is no group in, our, in my country as well as yours who have a picture of the future. Above right. all, a positive picture of the future, but actually any picture of the future. And I think that includes Donald Trump. Right. 
who's as paranoid and self-conscious as we all are. We've sort of got all trapped in bubbles, and that's really what I was trying to analyze, is how we've got there, and the responsibility we all bear right. for this retreat from reality. I don't, but I don't think your country is going to fall apart. No. Your country, some very powerful and not very nice, rich people yeah. have worked out that practically everyone has retreated. Yeah. And they've done a power grab. Right. And why but, shouldn't they? Because that's what they are built to do. Right. And what politics is, should be built to do is to counter them, to actually con check them and say, no, you can't do that because actually the role of the state is to protect those who you are not protecting. Right. And their state, because the liberals have retreated, the state is not doing that. So what you've got is a right-wing government who just wants to eat away the state. And of course, that's logical for it. You right. can't blame them. Where do they think they were to... I mean, their their vision is is very narrow. It's very uh, near sight. Is it near sighted or far sighted? <laughs> you can only see in front of you. I think I'd go for near sighted. Yeah, near sighted. Uh, because they they just want what they can get now. The cash grab. The the yes. hold on to their close the gate. Yes. And live out the rest of their lives. Maybe their children's lives yes. in the opulence that they're comfortable with. My theory is is that we misunderstand both President Reagan and Mrs. Thatcher. We look at them as, as successful right-wing politicians, but actually I think they sort of failed halfway through their rules. Mm -hmm. But both, if you go back to the beginnings of your President Reagan, my Mrs. Thatcher, mm -hmm. they came in at the beginning of the 80s and said, we are going to make industry great again. Reagan was very important about yeah. this. He, he used, in fact, he used to go around Pennsylvania, Ohio. Yeah. To, I've got a film of him going to these steel mills saying, right. we're going to make it great again. Yeah. That didn't happen. I'm from Pennsylvania, from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Yeah. And Bethlehem Steel is now literally issued. This is a, a great topic. Bethlehem Steel has been turned into literally a casino. You I've know been, about that? I've been there. It's crazy. It's, like, it's so, it's so poorly written. And next thing. door to the casino is a nice industrial museum. Yes, to see. Set around the old yeah. um, uh, works. The, yeah? the foundries or That's whatever. That's right. Yeah. So it's really strange. So you've got, you've got nice liberals looking at the history of industry. Yeah. Or next door, you've got a casino. Right. It's very weird. I mean, it's it's poorly written, you know, it's like a poorly written script. It's like, yes. come on, it's not going to be that blatant. But you see, my theory is, is that by the middle of the 1980s, both Reagan and Thatcher had allowed industry to collapse, or a large chunk of it, right. because their economic experiment to regenerate industry had not worked. Right. So what they then did is they turned to finance. And they said to finance, well, it wasn't quite as simple as that, right. but finance said, look, we can actually lend people money. Sure. I mean, up to that point, they didn't lend all the money like right. they do now. Credit yeah. cards were not big. Yeah. If you didn't have money, you didn't buy things. No. <laughs> but what what then began to evolve, and I don't think this was any giant conspiracy theory, it's just people found it out, right. was that if you lent people money, they would feel richer. Sure. But wages didn't have to go up. Right. So you'd solved a problem politically. Right. But in the process, you'd given power away to finance. And I think we've been through a period from about the mid-1980s to 2008, when actually that financial system worked extremely well. It was like a technocratic system. Right. And it, and it gave all of us money and in right. return we went shopping and a, and a consumerist economy right. blossomed and people like uh, President Clinton gave even more power through Alan Greenspan yeah. to the banks and it worked yeah. because they did have a system that worked yeah. and then in 2008 it crashed right. but rather than try and reform the system what seems to be happening now and this is coming back to your original question yeah. is those in charge 
of the system are beginning to sort of loot it. Yeah. In hypernormalization, you use Donald Trump as a character in, in the documentary. I do, yeah. Um, and he kind of represents a couple, a couple of different things, but you see him a little bit as a tool of, the, of these people you're talking about or, or uh, somebody that can be used. Well, Donald Trump has always been a creature of finance. Right. Well, no, that's unfair. From about 1991-92, when Donald Trump went bankrupt, right. or his, his, his companies were declared right. bankrupt, he, uh, a lot of his buildings were bought by the banks. Right. Um, and he tended to then become a man whose name was put on other people's buildings. Right. He became a brand. And he himself was sort of he's, a br- he's a He's a brand. He's a brand. Right. Um, he's the idea, he's the personification of what dumb people think rich people should be. And I don't which think, is not a very nice thing to And say. you see, what I would argue is that in a way, he is now performing for finance another service. Right. He's created a pantomime which has completely hypnotized all progressives, all liberals, right. all leftists, right. because he just goes, here's a really bad thing. Right. And they go, we hate you, we want to resist you. Right. And meanwhile, behind the scenes, behind the scenery of the pantomime, yeah. the people from Goldman Sachs and They're running the are, show. are still in, in power. Right, right. Yet the system they run, I would argue, is flatlining. It, it, since 2008, it depends on billions and billions of handouts from the state. Right. It's got a very strange name, and it's called quantitative easing. No one is paying any attention to it because it's got such a complicated name. Right. But actually, every month they give you billions of billions of dollars, which right. they don't give to anyone else. That's called looting the state. Yeah. <laughs> so it does not, I mean, it doesn't really, I guess it doesn't matter, but do you think, is Donald Trump, is he self-aware of the game he's playing or is he a mad is he mad? Does he have cauliflower for brains? And no one knows. No one knows. And isn't it's, that, it's irrelevant. And isn't that right? part of the game? I mean, isn't isn't the well, thing? It ab- keeps you guessing. Yeah, the thing about propaganda in our time, which makes it different from previous propaganda. Previous propaganda was they would tell you things that you believed, right? And then a journalist would come along and do some digging, and find out that, that it might not be true. At which point right. you go, "Ooh, good journalist." Yeah, yeah. Now I'll go to the politicians and say you're you're bad. Yeah. That was the old idea. Right. What happens now is you get politicians in Russia and increasingly here and in my country who go, "Actually, we know." that you know that I'm lying. <laughs> but you don't know which bit I'm saying right. is the lie right. and which bit is true. And then Donald Trump has taken that to an even higher level, which is what you've just talked about, is yeah. we don't know whether he knows that he's being used <laughs> or whether he's actually some dumb patsy. Right. So he's part of the... Conf- it, it's, it's a constructive confusion. And there are people they're out there that are that that are in these power positions that know this or that that have an awareness of it i think they have an awareness i mean i don't i never believe in conspiracy theories right. i think that powerful people work out they're like clever badgers they, right. that they find the quickest way out of the set right and they spot things and they spot oh yeah we could do that right and i think with donald trump they spotted they've just got a great vaudeville entertainer right who can keep everything over there right sort of Innovate, yeah, innovated, yeah. I think is the word. Yeah. Keep your eye on the red tie. Yeah. Whereas, exactly. <laughs> whereas, whereas over here, we uh-huh. just carry on with the, with the system as it is. Right. Because actually, not much is changing. Right. He keeps on doing things. Right. Well, sure. Yeah. 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 Things have not changed yet. But the structure of power in this country remains the same. Right. Now, are you seeing some of the 
the put the the Putin uh, hysteria and the Trump collusion and all that stuff. Are you seeing that as an attempt to build a, a story, a t- attempt to build a narrative? I just think it's speaking as an outsider. Yeah, watching American liberals go crazy, hysterical about Russia. It's quite strange. I mean, to me, as an outsider, it looks like a group desperately trying to find any excuse, any reason why Donald Trump won the election, right. other than blaming themselves. Right. Yeah? Because what I find really strange in the, the current hysteria mm-hmm. that Putin won the election for Trump is you have liberals allying with the intelligence agencies. Right. Now, for 30 years, the liberals and the progressive have hated the intelligence agencies, often with good reason, because for 40 years, they've gone around the world rigging elections, right. uh, bringing assassinating coups, people, assassinating yeah. people, bringing, engineering coups in democratic right. countries, and generally doing bad stuff. Right. And suddenly, the liberals are saying, no, they're really a noble organization. Right. And everything they're saying about Russia is completely true. Right. But if you're a nerd and you go and look at the Joint Intelligence Committee's report right. that was brought out about a month ago, uh-huh. that seems to, uh, was used by a lot of leading newspapers to allege that there was proof that President Putin had rigged the election. If right. you read it, there's absolutely no evidence. Right. There is lots of supposition. Right. And then the appendix, which is almost as big as the report, is full of quotes from Russia Today. I if see. you're a journalist, yeah. you don't believe Anything, no matter Russia, right. Russia Today says it doesn't get it gets thrown out. With the you best. just don't bother. Yeah. It's quite funny, right? Right. But if that's what um, the spies believe is the evidence, right. then I'm afraid I don't. I mean, I'm still waiting for the evidence. Right. Is what I'm saying, because to be honest, looking at it from outside, the reason the, the the I'm sure the Russians probably did hack the Democratic sure. Party's computers. Yeah. I, what they discovered, because if you look at it, is incredibly boring. Sure. And I don't think that's the reason why Donald Trump won the election. Right. Donald Trump won the election because a lot of people who would have voted for the Democrats felt completely isolated and alone and were frightened of the future and didn't feel the liberals cared for them any longer. It was a terrible campaign. I couldn't believe that their only move, their only play was... What look at this bad man and the bad things he says? Yes, that was their play. And then the, your your the, his opponent called the people who might have who ended up voting for him deplorables. Right. Well, it's shocking. I mean, the thing that really makes me it doesn't make me angry. It just makes me shocked. Is the way the liberals are, in America are constantly insulting the people who voted for Donald Trump. Right. They call them stupid and ignorant. They're not stupid and ignorant. They're frightened, lonely, isolated people who felt that the political system had completely ignored them and gave them no sense of any future. And someone came along and gave them a button. I'm going to say a bad word here. And that button simply said on it, fuck off. Right. And they pressed that button. Right. And that's what and happened. like And also just like roll the dice. Like, I don't know what this I is going to be. Exactly. But let's, it's, it can't be, yes. it's got to be something different. And to turn around to those people and just say they're stupid and ignorant makes it worse. Right. That's the reason why they voted for Donald Trump, because you say they're stupid. They know you don't respect them. And if you ever want to challenge Donald Trump's power, you've got to go and reconnect with those people. And they may be racist, but so what? Mm-hmm. Politics is about making all kinds of alliances, not necessarily people who you believe are good, but actually 
who you think you can help and change and transform with really good ideas. Right. At the moment, we have, and it's sort of true in my country as well, but it's worse here, you just despise those people. And when people despise other people, it's always out of fear. And I think the Liberals are frightened of those people because I have an underlying theory that, I'm going to use a posh word here, Donald Trump is what is called a comedic character. <laughs> he's, a, he's like a pantomime villain mm -hmm. who holds up to you, to America, an exaggerated and distorted version right. of the society that you, the progressive liberal, have helped create. Right. And you know it. Yeah? Not you, not, you didn't create it yourself. I understand, yeah, yeah. And, and that's why you hate him so much. And I think that's bad. Well, I mean, as somebody that's made a lot of stuff... Um, and have profited from it. Listen, I, you know, I went. I have money. I have, I have money in my bank account, and I have a house, and I have a family, and I went to my, uh, you know. But I'm an, I'm a liberal. I'm an act. You know, I, I try to give money to, to ACLU and all that stuff, and you know, I went to my financial advisor, and I have stocks and in, in retirement funds and stuff, and I was like, what, you know, I don't know what I should do here. You know, I feel like conflicted because my money is in, I know where my money is, you know? And she looked at me and said, well, yeah, that's, maybe you should give some more money to your charities if you want, but you shouldn't take it out of this market. You know what I mean? So I'm a fucking hypocrite. I get it. You know, I don't, I don't know. We, we create the, uh, the world we live in. But the... I don't think one should kill oneself for being a slightly hypocritical. I mean, right. human beings tend to be hypocritical in all sorts of ways. Right. What I'm saying is something just simpler than that, yeah. is that if people have voted for someone you really don't like, go and find out why they did. Don't make presumptions. Sure. Just go and find out. Right. And she do. I noticed that Bernie Sanders is doing this. He's not joining in with this hysteria. Right. He's going holding town hall meetings all over, and just finding out. Right. And I think that's that's really good. Because if you're ever going to if you're ever going to change the world, you've got to ally with those people. But there are there are a portion of the Donald Trump voter who you you would find easily was was uh, misinformed or didn't have the information that maybe some of us have or that that, that jumped to conclusions about or or didn't know about you know have a perception of Donald Trump that isn't true that made the decision to vote for him based on maybe a manipulation of of the facts. Maybe. But so what? <laughs> I mean, that's politics. I mean, that's all of us. I mean, that's... I mean, what I'm saying is, why, why are they more misinformed than the people who thought that Hillary Clinton was bound to win? Right. I mean, I would have thought the most gross piece of misinformation was the, was the, endless, that, yeah. the endless assumption from op-ed commentators, right. from economists, right. from political think tanks, and to the, from the pollsters, which led the very opposite of the other people right. I've talk, talk, that you've just been talking about, right. to believe that Hillary Clinton was going to win. Right. Wasn't that gross misinformation? Gross stupidity? Absolutely. All right, so we should wrap this up probably, right? I don't know. Actually, I don't know there's one other thing talk. I wanted to get to. Go since, ahead. Since, well, can we just talk about satire? Yes. Because I think it's a really interesting question sitting here. Is that you, you had, what was he called? John Stewart. Mm-hmm who became very big right. amongst a certain cohort right. for about 10 years. Yeah. And I saw it every now and then when I came to America. Yeah. I wasn't devoted to it, but I would watch it in hotel rooms. And it seemed to me a lot of it at the time was laughing at those outside 
outside the bubble. Sometimes that literally was the joke. Yes. They would just look at the thing and go... <laughs> yes, yeah. those people are stupid. Right. Is it possible that somehow those outside the bubble noticed that they were being laughed at like that? Sure. And is it possible that maybe satire had the very opposite effect of what the people who were laughing thought it might have? Right. Which is that it actually helped Donald Trump get elected. Well, the joke that I started seeing amongst uh, the, the last year w was the people making fun of the idea of, say, John Oliver eviscerating Donald Trump. That became a little joke on Twitter amongst people that were a bit too cynical, you know, or, or, or just cynical enough, or had the right, saw, saw that coming. This, this form of uh, the know-it-all comedian, the, the real, you know, quick-witted guy, uh, the John Stewart or the John Oliver or um, Bill Maher, with the, with the line and everything, um, f felt like it was meaningless. It wasn't doing anything. That's what I felt as I watched it in my hotel rooms. I began to feel it was like children sniggering yeah. at their parents and their parents' friends downstairs having a slightly awkward cocktail party. <laughs> right. And that it really wasn't anything more than that. Well, I've been pushing this guy in America, this guy Vic Berger, who had been has been making videos and they're a little bit like yours in a way because he just takes footage. He just takes the footage and re-edits it and, and manipulates it drastically but they're for comic effect. And they're fucking hilarious. And they're, they're dark and they're scary, you know, because he's, diving, he's like drilling into the, to the heart of, of what we're all feeling when we're looking at Donald Trump's inauguration. He doesn't sit there and go, look at these fucking guys, you know. Yes. He drills into the feeling you have you know, and and it's very funny, but but frightening too. And that's that to me is the future of satire. I think that's right. I think I mean it's what I was trying to do in hypernormalization right. to explain the what are, the feelings of anxiety yeah. and uncertainty that we have today, where they come from. Right. And I think that's really important to do. Yeah. To actually open up an emotional history of our time. Yeah. yeah Rather absolutely. than sniggering and saying with an arrogance. Right that we're all uncertain, we're all a bit alone at the moment. Why do we feel like that? And where do you, so what is, you're very critical of the idea of there's no vision, right? Or you're, well, you're not just, about critical, but you're, you're acknowledging that that's, th that's a I thing. I think that's the problem yeah. of our time. Yeah. And it, so we're, I mean, this is a, a dumb, or this is a, you know, hippie question or whatever, but like, so where do you, what do you see, where do you, what would you want to see? Where would you want to see us go? Where do you want to see the world go? Do, do you have a do you do you have you been able to since you've made all this stuff? Do you have your in your own head, your own soul, whatever, a vision for a better world? As no, as Coca-Cola as that sounds. No, I don't. I mean, I think the the, the truth is that none of us do. Yeah. That's the dilemma of our time. I think the first step is you go and find out where power has gone. Right. And that's what I was talking about with Donald Trump. Is yeah. we may be looking at the wrong. Right. He's the he's he's the vaudeville character who's distracting us right. and trapping us. Look at where real power's gone. That's what I was trying to show part of the entire yeah. normalization. The second thing is that actually, if you do want to change the world, you're going to have to give yourself up to doing it. You're going to have to surrender yourself. Right. You can't just go on one march against the Iraq invasion and go home and go, 
that's right. it, and let the invasion happen. Well, I went to the Women's March, so that was a big, big step for everybody, I think, for, that I was there. No, I'm just kidding, but I hear you. Yeah, continue. Well, I mean, I'm very suspicious. I mean, in the, in the film I've just made, I'm quite critical of the Occupy movement mm-hmm. for being a very good managed system of how to assemble a lot of people together in a square. Right. But once they get to the square, they have absolutely no idea of the world they wanted to create. Right. And they had such good will. They had such a great slogan. Right. And they had lots of people who would not normally have supported that kind of rebellion right. supporting them. And they blew it. Right. And if I ran Occupy, I'd sack them. I mean, I really would. They were useless. And they right. completely failed and they blew it. And they had a great chance there. I have the same feeling with the, what's called the resistance at the moment. Well, right. resistance for what? Yeah. I mean, and it's not a very good thing to model yourself on the French resistance in the Second World War, which seems to be their model. <laughs> because if you know what happened, is yeah. they had to come and be rescued by the Americans. Right. While the Americans then piled mm-hmm. on towards Berlin, leaving the resistance fighters to actually kill each other, <laughs> shave the heads of anyone they thought was a collaborator, right. and actually produce the nasty right-wing governments in Paris for the rest of right. the 1950s. So I don't really think it's a very good model. What I'm saying is they need a picture of the future, and you do that by having the capacity to understand why people who voted for Trump feel as they do. And you've got to find a way of creating a story that can reassure them and build them a better world. It's not going to come out of what you want, right. because you know very well, as your financial advisor just right. told you, right. that you're, you're okay. Yeah, yeah. And when you're okay, yeah, yeah. what you have to do is go and find, have a generosity of imagination and find out what other people feel. And that includes going to talk to people who are racist. Sure. And understanding where their racism comes from. Right. Well, and what people want to do. What do you want to do? What You know, something that's occurred to me recently is with the rise of automation and this idea of we don't need this many people doing things, you know, working and figuring out why is there, you know, what do you do with people? What, what do, do you do with people? Could Do you do the uni- what's called the universal living wage? Right. Do you actually pay everyone a, f- a fundamental flat wage? Right. And they can then either work or they don't. Right. Or do you say, as someone pointed out to me the other day, within about 10 years, most trucks will be self-driven. Right. And one of the biggest empl- areas of employment in your country are truck, truck drivers. Yeah, yeah. Well, go and get in contact with them now. Yeah. What start, do you want to do? Start talking to them and, now. And if we can at- approach it from a positive place. Yes. Like, working sucks. Nobody wants to work. No. I hate working. I know. If I have to put a piece of furniture together in my house, I have a, you know, it ruins my, my day. So what else is there to do in life? What do we want to do? What, what can human beings do? Human beings want to do all sorts of things. Some right. people would like to go on working because it gives them a sense of identity yeah. and satisfaction. Yeah. Other people might want to do something else. What's sitting here is there are all possible dreams. Right. And I think, to be honest, you have to go back to the great thinkers of the 19th century before Karl Marx came along and said it's all about economics. Right. <laughs> who had sort of really weird, strange he, he dreams. He sucked all the air out of the yes, room. Yes, he did. He, he was the first sort of boring managerialist revolutionary. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas before them, there were completely batty ones, most of which were silly. Right. But what, I'm, what you just touched on is there could be fantastic other ways of living. Sure. And I'm sure there will be in the yeah. future. Well, that's the thing. We, we, we know we have so much information, we have so much technology that can tell us what we need and where it is. Yes. Right? Which, which it's brilliant at doing. Right. What it can't tell us is what kind of society we can then create right. when we have all that time and leisure. Right. But, but at the moment, we are encouraged to believe that everything has an economic rationale to Association it. Association with it. Right. And you measure things economically. Yeah. 
it's a, we live in a simple, very narrow utilitarian world, right. and we're trapped by that. And the sooner we break out of that, the better. That's going to be so hard. Damn it. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, right? And maybe satire. It's going, to, it's going to take a long, it's going to take like, you know, a disaster, a series of disasters to get to a place where that, that we break out of uh, the... No, or it, or it takes, and this is where you go back to the really big question about the sec Second World War, mm -hmm. is can you tell people dramatic stories right. that you're going to sweep them up and take them with you to another world right. without it all going wrong? Right. Do you have to live in this managed world where the banks just give you a bit of credit every now and then and Amazon says, if you like this, you'll like that, and the thing just goes round right. and round? Or do you want to go on a dynamic journey somewhere? which could be thrilling, but also could be incredibly dangerous. Well, thanks for talking. I mean, that was good. Yeah, I think that was good. Yeah, I like that. Good. Pleasure. I hope you didn't mind talking about satire, but I just think that's a really interesting area. Absolutely. This is Nick Dawson from TalkHouse Film, and you've been listening to Tim Heidecker and Adam Curtis on the TalkHouse Film Podcast. This episode was recorded by Susan Vallett and mixed by Mark Yoshizumi. The TalkHouse podcast producer is Elia Einhorn. For more filmmakers talking film and TV, visit talkhouse.com film. And if you want to listen to more episodes where politics and comedy collide, check out Neil Brennan talking with Michael Kirk and Morgan Spurlock's chat with Louis Theroux. Plus, of course, the rabble-rousing Tim Heidecker, Chris Gethard talk from 2016. Subscribe to TalkHouse Film and TalkHouse Music Podcasts on iTunes and Stitcher, where you can find all our previous episodes. And while you're there, please rate and review as it helps others to find the podcast. Please... Cut out my talk about rap music, I think. It's probably a good idea. <laughs> I think that would be good, because neither of us knew what we were talking no, about. No, that was a bad, that was a bad yeah. moment. <laughs>